I remember when uh, a dear friend of mine, we'll call him Chuck, he was having problems at a dear church to me. We'll call that First Church. First Church was having trouble with their pastor. And it looked like that the pastor was going to be forced to resign. Uh, was the pastor at fault with what I knew? Yes, very much so. Were there people in the church at fault? Yes, I believe there were. There were some hotheads who were in a hurry to get the pastor out of there instead of work things through. Chuck was sad and, and disillusioned to say the least. He had really grown up in this church, he told me. And while he didn't find the pastor faultless, he certainly thought that the church was moving too fast. It, it actually didn't help that Chuck had been away on a trip and he felt like most of this precipitated. While he was gone, he left with the church having this pastor and he came back to find the church was ready to have him resign. And to add to these factors, Chuck said that, you know, his theology was beginning to line up with a church that really wasn't this church. Maybe this was his time to leave. But I said, all of those people though, uh, that's your family. You've been there forever. At least a decade, if not more. And, and furthermore, when I, I went on to say, when it comes to theology, what will be the, the practical applications wherein you'll feel better at a, a different church other than the fact that you might feel a little bit reinforced in particulars that you believe more and more? In other words, knowing First Church and knowing Chuck and knowing what kind of theology that First Church believed, it's not that First church ever preached outright heresy or things that were wrong. It's just that in a few particular matters, Chuck thought differently. But I, being a Nazarene who became a Quaker and, and preaching the Bible at this church, I, I told Chuck, find me a church where everyone in the church believes every single thing. The name on the signpost wants them to believe, including the pastor. And it made me realize something perhaps I never would have thought, voiced, or affirmed before, but we say it all the time, the church is the people. And I told Chuck, it seems to me, like any family, he and his family at First Church no doubt had things to work through, but leaving them in this critical time wasn't a good idea. Chuck didn't listen to me. He sadly no longer attends First Church. We are picking up the story in Acts. Acts chapter 21 is where we're at. And for a quick refresher of the last time we were in Acts together, Paul felt called to Jerusalem. Very much so. He's coming back from his third missionary journey and he knows, he knows he needs to be in Jerusalem. But interestingly, everyone around Paul, his whole way back, is a hundred percent convinced that the Spirit is telling them that he will suffer there. Thus they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul's like Chuck, he goes anyway. <laughs> well, we discussed that last time, if you're wondering, well, how is the Holy Spirit telling Paul to go, but telling these others to stay? So if you want to find that online, if you have questions. But where we catch up now is the verse right after Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. I do invite you to stand in honor of Hearing the Lord's word today, if you're able to stand, and let's read uh, verses 18 through 26. <clears throat> we read, 
And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are not teaching all the Jews, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will have certainly, they will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this what we tell you. Do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have also believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, um, you inspired the writing of these words. You're present with us today. You can take these words and use them for the glorifying of your Son Jesus and instructing us in the way that we should walk. Holy Spirit, you're able to open up our hearts and minds to receive what it is you would have us receive. So we pray that you would be the one speaking and not I. Have your way in our hearts and minds. Help us to be yielded and obedient to you. Because we love you. Because you first loved us through the power and work and ministry of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Though Paul knew he would suffer, he had wanted to get back to Jerusalem. Uh, there are really three big churches in Paul's day, it seems like, to me, the big centers of the church, I should say, Jerusalem, where Jesus died, where the apostles started their ministry from, Antioch, which sprang up, but was no doubt helped immensely by Barnabas and Paul to become a Gentile mission church, Gentile meaning all those who are not Jews, and then most recently, thanks to the likes of Paul, the Ephesian church. It is believed that Ephesus would become the Apostle John's home church for a long season. These three churches. And it appears to me in the book of Acts, Jerusalem is still thought kind of as the mother church, what we might call the denominational headquarters. As seen in Acts chapter 15, there was this Jerusalem council. And it had a uh, somewhat... Uh, frictional relationship with the growing Gentile church, so it seems. But they've made some headway through, though, with this Jerusalem council. And so we begin here in verses 18 through the beginning of verse 20 with what I call a paired joy. The joy that 
Paul has in bringing uh, the Gentiles to faith and the joy that the church has. Indeed, we see, we really see the Jerusalem church champion the cause of Christ in the Gentile world. Again, we read, And now the following day, Paul went in with us, Luke is included apparently, to James, and all the elders were present. Now, some have wondered with that remark, both James and all the elders were present. If this means only the leaders of the church want to gladly hear a report or do to the rest of the conversation after, this is also kind of a, the church leadership is here because we want to talk about something, Paul. And the nuance that that brings. If you did not know, this James is not the James of the disciples or the brother of John. That James was killed in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Rather, this is James likely half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. Many believe, as I am inclined to also, that he converted to worship his half-brother Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. Having a brother, I can testify, I would probably only worship my brother after he died. (laughs) Not while he was still around. But, anyways, um, the book of John and some other parts of the Gospel accounts tells us that Jesus seemed to be dismissed by his brothers in his life. But Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus apparently had a one-on-one encounter after he died and rose again with James. And now James is apparently in a leadership position in Jerusalem. Some see the way that the dynamics play out in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council that you know James kind of makes this final statement and he solidifies uh What's happening? So it seems like he's a leader. As for the elders here in Acts 21, it's unclear if they, any of them are of the twelve. Maybe, maybe the, the elders there used to be comprised of the twelve. We don't know. Acts has told us that many of the twelve have scattered. We continue on. It says, and after he had greeted them, he, Paul, began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. So I, I, first of all, I want to see this, that the Jerusalem head honchos, that's the Greek term. No, it's not. But the, the, the leaders of this church are glorifying God for the ministry done among the Gentiles. They've accepted this part of the new covenant that the people who were not God's people are now His people and they're worshiping the Lord. They're glorifying God through what God has done through the ministry of Paul. They affirm Paul. They're saying, you're working for the Lord. But, going back to the fact that that Paul is being received by James and the elders, there is now, in this second half of verse 20, through verse 25, a perceived threat. And they said to him, many take into consideration now, verse 25, where we see there the the letter that James had kind of composed and commissioned, they wonder if the they here is really Paul, or James, excuse me. They wonder if this is really James primarily talking to Paul. Uh, We hear, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. 
So, these are believers, but they're zealous for the law. Uh, We spent a, a few months here at Woodland Friends going through the book of Galatians last year. And there's this problem of a Jesus and thing going on here. Uh, a Jesus plus thing. They're believers. They believe that, that one is saved by faith in Christ Jesus, but as Jews, and perhaps noting that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, apparently failing to grasp all the implications of the new covenant and how that makes the first one obsolete, Hebrews 8.13, these Jews are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, and told here is actually catecheo, which is the idea of catechize. In other words, these Jewish believers haven't been instructed. They've been taught that you, Paul, are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, first off, Paul comes close to this, but not this far. (laughs) See, the accusation is stating that Paul is telling people don't get circumcised, don't walk in the customs of the law. Paul says more often than not that people are free from these things. It's not required anymore. The law is not a necessity for salvation, nor is it a necessity for remaining in Christ. As Paul writes to the Galatians, a letter already likely written by this time, Paul says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, referring to himself and his kindred, Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But, for reasons maybe of Jewish identity, for reasons of maybe keeping the peace around people, if people want to continue observing the law, knowing full well it's not what saves them, Paul seems to have never had a problem with that, and in fact we'll see that played out by himself here in a few verses. However, the charges against Paul are too far. He's preached freedom of conscience, not prohibition altogether. Do we understand the difference of those two? What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now I want to say two things about this, because here's what's happening. The elders in Jerusalem are taking into consideration who Paul is and what is said about him and contrasting it, filling out potential problems with who the zealous, law-loving Jewish Christians are. And they're saying, we need to prepare for this. We need to do something. So that's the first thing. Preparing for potential problems due to the fact that the way that Paul acts and what he preaches, quite frankly, might offend the zealous, law-loving Jewish Christians. Here's the second thing I want to say, though. When is this going too far? Have the elders gone too far to appease someone or some people? These are these are just church leaders in and around James trying their best to put out fires. Is it led of the Spirit? I don't know. Here's what I do know as a pastor that I've been here. <laughs> I've felt the tension 
that these elders feel. I know that <laughs> this person's here today and they're not going to like that person who I know is going to stand up and say, or, oh great, that person's here today and my sermon's just going to settle well with them. And though Paul is not going great lengths here to, excuse me, Paul is going to go to great lengths here to try and fail, we might add, nevertheless try to keep the peace. I wonder if sometimes Christ doesn't bring peace. From a Quaker pastor. Um, but a sword. And lo and behold, if Paul's gospel is offensive, it's not Paul's fault. It's the gospel's fault. And if the offended person is offended, it's the offended person's fault, really. <laughs> They're the ones not yielding to truth. They're the ones choosing to be offended over choosing to repent. Christ said, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. How do you think a Jewish person feels? Oh, the Messiah came. He fulfilled the law because you're too sinful to keep it and could never receive the reward of eternal life through the law given to us by God. So Christ did it for you, you bad Jewish person, you. They're offended. And perhaps it's a hard offense to get over because the folks James and the elders have in mind are people who apparently they've come halfway. We accept Christ as the Messiah, but there still must be a place for the law. We should keep the law. Paul, Paul flat out disagrees. If by that they mean keeping the law contributes to their salvation. The elders apparently know Paul enough to know that, but the elders need to keep the peace again Therefore, do this that we tell you. Again, has this been prayed over? Is the Spirit led? What I do know is that I've been reading the book of Genesis lately, and Jacob's mom, Rebecca, uses a line like that a lot. Do therefore what I tell you. And in the case of Rebecca, it's usually followed by bad advice. <laughs> Such as, dress yourself up like your brother and steal his blessing. Don't do what I say, do what I... No, <laughs> Maybe since these are Jerusalem leaders, we should assume more often than not that they've prayed it over. But even if they did, we're going to see it doesn't work, their wonderful little plan. He says, they say, we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. A, a vow that involves shaving one's head is more than likely a Nazarite vow. Numbers 6, 1 through 21 describes this vow. Nazarite simply means one separated or one consecrated. And in that passage, a few practices are laid out for folks who might voluntarily take up this vow, such as not drinking or eating anything from the grapevine, no touching dead things, nor to cut their hair at all until a specified time. Jewish tradition usually had a minimum of 30 days. It was voluntarily voluntary, so they could do this vow as long as they want. The ending ceremony would happen at the tabernacle, or if you're post-tabernacle, likely the temple in Jerusalem. And among the ceremonial offerings at the end was also offering one's cut hair to be burnt up. And if you read Acts, the thing is, is we've already seen Paul likely take this vow for his own personal reasons. In the sermon I preached on it, I called it the freedom to discipline. 
because I made the case that I believe Paul was doing it for personal spiritual enrichment reasons, not for reasons he felt it would add anything to his salvation. You know, sometimes Christians fast. Uh, Sometimes Christians put personal goals down, such as I'm starting a Bible reading plan for 2023, and this time I'm going to beat Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I'm going to beat those old prophets. I'm going to read the Bible this year. These are disciplines we're imposing on ourselves. Where do they come from? Christian culture. Never did Jesus command, Thou shalt read my word and follow a plan for the year. I don't know why Jesus sounds like that. But <laughs> nevertheless, we, we take something from our culture and, and we say, this is a good idea to implement for spiritual growth. And glory be to God, it is. Paul grew up Jewish. And the Nazarite vow was a good thing to implement. And it's likely the Nazarite vow that the Jerusalem church leaders here are saying, hey, do a Nazarite vow with these other four men. So if seen in public by the zealous law lovers, verse 24 finishes, and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. Now, Stuff like this makes me bristle. Does Paul walk orderly, keeping the law? In a previous draft of this sermon, I I entitled this little part of the story, To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. Taken straight from 1 Corinthians 9.20, a letter Paul had also already likely written by this point. I believe that passage is insightful in answering if Paul truly lives in observance or if he walks orderly, keeping the law. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-22, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law. Then listen to this, Paul says, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. Paul says he's not under the law. Paul says he's lived like one outside the law. You know, Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. I heard a funny joke from a pastor once, and he, he likened it to this. It's completely lawful to dismantle your lawnmower and eat it. Is it beneficial? Is it against the law of Christ? I don't know, but it's probably not healthy. (laughs) All things are lawful is not a Jewish sentiment. Under the law of Moses, some things are not lawful. But as a Christian, Paul believes all things are lawful, just not helpful. Not Not all things build up or edify. And it's this belief that though anyone has the freedom to do certain things, Paul's going to limit that freedom. Though no one has to engage in keeping or observing the law for any purpose, Paul's going to do it because to the Jews, he became as a Jew. 
to those weak in faith, and for the person who believes that Christ alone doesn't save, (laughs) we must also keep the law. That is weak faith. Sorry. But Paul's going to make himself weak. It could be that even James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church in this transitional period of the Old and New Covenants, maybe they haven't come to complete grip like Paul has in what the Gospel entails. So does Paul walk orderly keeping the law? Probably not as much as they believe he does. Now even in his missionary travels, there were times when he desired to make it back to Jerusalem for this feast or that feast, but other times, such as in Corinth, where he stayed over a year and a half, or in Ephesus, he stayed upwards of two years in pagan Gentile cities, not returning to Jerusalem for feasts, or the text doesn't seem to let us know if he did. No doubt dining with non-Jews, as he records in the book of Galatians, getting after Peter for being a hypocrite who would dine with Gentiles. But then, interestingly enough, when people around James, the same people that Paul's talking to now, would come up to Antioch, Peter would just kind of pull back and not eat with those Gentiles. This similar crowd, James himself, or those around James, they want Paul to go through a few loops, and Paul's going to do it. James, or the elders around him, then remind Paul, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, this is the the same letter that the Jerusalem Council sent to the Gentiles. I want you to know some glaring absences. Where's the Ten Commandments? Where's where's the whole law? It's not in there. (laughs) Huh, interesting. And then, the, the, the point is, is they recited the letter from the Jerusalem Council, stating essentially, here's the rules outlined for the Gentiles, but we're Jews, Paul. Let's show them your Jewishness. The way that Luke writes, without batting an eye, we read, then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Numbers 16.13-15 tells us that the offering for the end of a Nazarite vow was one male lamb, one ewe lamb, and one ram with the appropriate meal and drink offerings. In other words, pretty pricey to pay for oneself and for others. Not only is he being more Jewish, he's forking over cash. (laughs) But Paul did it. Now some like to look at this and look at the Paul who wrote Galatians and confronted Peter about Peter suddenly reverting to more Jewishness after James gets after him, and they say, what's going on, Paul? I think what's going on is that Paul is witnessing, and he's even willing to witness to the church. I wonder if you've ever witnessed this in a family. Individuals are peaceable to strangers more than their own family members. You know, I'm sure you've been there. You're, You're having a hard and angry, tempestuous day in the house, angry, and then suddenly a phone call happens, and in the best, most polite voice ever, within the blink of an eye, you answer, hello, how are you today? I'm fantastic. (laughs) Meanwhile, your family members are like, really? You just put the chainsaw down to answer the phone. Like, (laughs) 
Paul, however, seems to realize that he needs to witness to those who don't know Jesus, and he needs to witness to those who do know Jesus. He says in Romans, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It seems evident to me what kind of thoughts Paul had concerning these more zealous, law-loving Christians. But if in the insight of the Jerusalem leaders that A, these men were Christians, and B, just had some scruples that were ruffled by Paul's understanding of the gospel, Paul's thinking no need to make more divisions. Uh, Paul was going to do what he can to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, if you read on, you'll sadly see that it ruffles some actual non-Christian Jews' feathers, and we'll talk about that next week. But in the meantime, here's what we can learn. Who are you in church conflict? Oh, I need to go to the next one here. Um, you know, for Paul, like I said, we, we read Galatians, and it was one of his most heated letters. Letters. He called them bewitched. He accused them of falling from the very grace of God. He called them foolish. But for that time and place, perhaps that letter called for boldness, urgency, and confrontation. But here in Jerusalem, here where the gospel needed to keep the church together between Jewish converts and a growing population of Gentile converts, Paul chose becoming a Jew for the Jews. He chose becoming weak for the weak. You know, even in our denomination in our northwest region, whenever I go to Newburgh, Oregon, I'm reminded that not every church in our denomination is consistent with the kind of hymns we sing. Some music bands have drummers. Some sing more contemporary songs. You know, as I listen to, to speakers at our gatherings, some preach out of the New Living Translation. Some preach a bit more topically and not verse by verse like I do. And some of you are like, where are those churches? I miss that. My point is, is in those moments, I can choose to react a few ways. I can choose to let these preferences, or even let these convictions of mine, outweigh the need and the reality for what unites us. Did you know that people who preach out of the New Living Translation or topically love Jesus? They believe in His death, His blood, His resurrection, and that it's only grace that saves us? That people who sing contemporary songs or sing, are usually singing songs about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and what saves us. And while I can hold on to my convictions, and while I can hold on to my preferences, and I can be satisfied in my own example that I just laid out, I can also be satisfied, well, yeah, but I'm going to return to my comforts, and I can know that when I'm among others, I can become like others as well. Because there is unity and peace to be had in the gospel. Who are you in church conflict? Are you quick to take a side, get angry, get your feathers ruffled, find a hill, and plan to die? <laughs> or do you step back, do a little thinking, do a little discerning, and you say, you know, this isn't a make or break thing. Because there are make or break things. Even in the law-loving Jewish Christian conflict, Paul pointed out in Galatians a few times, this is serious. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive 
circumcision in the I need to have it to be saved sense, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. That's not like small potatoes. (laughs) There are times, even when in the things that we make grace for, a line may be crossed. I don't ever intend to visit a church where the music's words have nothing to do with God or worship. I don't intend to sit under preaching where the Koran or some other text outside the Bible is being preached on. There are times in conflict when, sure, maybe a hill must be ran to, but I fear too many times we're making mountains out of molehills. We're not actively pursuing the things that make for peace and the upbuilding of one another. Who are you in church conflict? Let's pray. Father, uh, culture, community, tradition are strong things. They bind us together, our identity. But you challenge even those notions. You've given us an identity as the family of Christ. And your family is big enough for all sorts of people. If the center of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and His Holy Spirit and salvation found through Him and Him alone are there, suddenly that brings other things into focus. Father, there are times when maybe something needs to be said, but help us to have the discernment like Paul to know I can fork over some cash and take a vow if it's going to appease someone or help somebody out. But help us to have that discernment and help us to be building up one another, to be gracious to one another, to love you and to love your people more than we love our preferences or even some of our convictions. Help us to be wise and discerning and gracious. Father, we thank you for the glue that holds us together in Christ and his cross and his resurrection. We thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.